Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Notre Dame Stadium. Here's Zivikowski, trying to get to the outside. He has blockers in front. Time for Zivikowski. Belong to beat. Shakes it off. To the five and touchdown. And now it is down. It is over. And the Irish have knocked off number one Clemson. Brady Quinn looking. Pump fakes. He rolls to the near side. Throws it. It's caught by Samaja. Inside the 20. Inside the 10. He's going in. Notre Dame has scored. Jones is the back. He's got it again. And Jones a letter room. Tony Jones makes a cut. Gets a block. And scores. Is that the play that will seal the playoff bid for Fighting Irish? New season. Calls for a new intro. That was Gravel Walk by the American Celtic Band of the Rose, and this is the Sons of Saturday Irish Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Rojack, and alongside me, as always, is my co-host, Luke Smith. Yo. Luke is reporting from a Chicago apartment in the middle of what sounds like a hellacious move-out process, but on the bright side, we have a really awesome episode to get to today. Last week, we got the chance to talk with Notre Dame Offensive Coordinator Tommy Reese, and he was awesome. Uh, he provided great insight on a whole bunch of stuff, including this year's offense, what he looks for in quarterback prospects. Plus, he was very candid with talking about his time as the starting quarterback for Notre Dame, so I think you guys will enjoy that. Then at the back half of the show, we'll get into Oklahoma and Texas pretty much cutting off the relationship with the Big 12 starting in 2025 and reportedly moving to the SEC. On the topic of coordinators, though, Luke met with defensive coordinator Marcus Freeman on the same day we interviewed Reese. So, Luke, what were your first impressions of the new D.C.? Yeah, I did. And first off, thanks for acknowledging the move. Um, if you looked to my left, there are a shit ton of boxes everywhere. And they're, I, I think, <coughs> yeah. <coughs> I'm going to I'm going to lose some stuff. There's no doubt tomorrow. Um, got my keys to the new place and there was some big protest protesting the fur trade. So uh, good to see I have new cool neighbors. But anyways, uh, back to the coordinator's point. I did uh, go to a Notre Dame Club of Chicago event last Thursday night where Marcus Freeman was the keynote speaker. And it was uh, another really engaging talk, I thought. I mean, he's kind of been making the rounds a little bit and a lot of what he said that night was I felt like I had heard in the past, but that didn't make it any less meaningful. Um, you know, he really kind of talked about his defensive philosophies, stressing three areas and then those being unit strength, challenging everything and, and aggressiveness. And I'm really excited to see how that plays out. But I, I also, of course, um, you know, earlier in the night, we were about five feet from him and uh, I was about to say something to him, at which point. The MC for the event comes on and says, all right, now, uh, everybody, it's it's time for Coach Freeman to take pictures for 45 minutes. So if you want a picture with Coach Freeman, come up front. And I look at him, and he just rolls his eyes and pretty much just gives a look that says, you got to be shitting me. Um, and I just burst out laughing, at which point he laughed and, like, nodded his head. But, of course, we ended up having <laughs> to get a picture with him to ourselves. <laughs> Naturally, but I guess, you know, what I'll say is I, I plugged this, so we'll see. Maybe we'll have him on. I told him that we had spoken to his counterpart earlier in the day. But what I'll say, and, and I'm confident this will come through in the interview we're about to play, and, and I know it was true just speaking with Freeman and, and seeing him interact and, and sticking around that gala the other night is his coaching staff's very likable right now. And uh, that's a really good thing, I think. As fans, you want to have guys that you can root for, not just as players, but as coaches. And I I know that that was what our experience was with Tommy, and I I think that'll come through on this interview. And and definitely was my experience the other night with Marcus. So it's good to see the program not only have good coaches, but but likable coaches as well, because that's not always been the case. I empathize with Freeman 
on the photo shoot thing. Um, when I was home in Louisville for like a month right before uh, I moved to L.A., it was one of the rare times where my entire family was together. And my mom scheduled a family photo shoot like months in advance, gave us the date weeks ahead of time and said, you all have to be free at this time on this specific date. We're doing family photos. I think for that hour that it lasted, I was just totally miserable. I'm I'm just, I'm not photogenic. I don't like taking planned photos. I have a terrible fake smile. I hated every second of it. So for Marcus Freeman to be able to do that for 45 minutes with people constantly coming up to him and probably trying to Maybe not you specifically, but I'm sure some people were kind of given their, you know, defensive philosophies. And I, uh, I understand where he's coming from. But that's good that he kept a smile on it throughout it all and uh, still had a really fun time. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like the other thing is like usually when you have to be that keynote speaker, those guys tend to get out of there as soon as they possibly can. But he hung around and talked to people for a while. Um, and, and I think that that. You know, we've been hearing all offseason about how charismatic he is, and, and it's very clear that that's the case when he speaks and also just the way he was interacting with with alums. Um, but it, it was definitely kind of a, a, a riveting speech, and uh, he definitely seems very pleased to be in South Bend. Hopefully it's for longer than a year, but uh, that's that's to worry about down the road. But, yeah, definitely a, a really good time the other night, and I uh, enjoyed it. All right, that's awesome. I'm glad you planted the seed to get him on the show uh, looking down the road. But for now, let's uh, turn our attention to the offensive coordinator, Coach Tommy Reese. All right, we're joined now by one of the most successful starting quarterbacks in school history and the current offensive coordinator for Notre Dame, Coach Tommy Reese. First off, Tommy, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to us. We know this offseason has been just an absolute whirlwind for you and the rest of the staff for a variety of different reasons. So we can just start there. What have these past you know, several months been like for you? Yeah, first of all, appreciate you guys having us on or me on. Uh, it's been a long time coming, but I'm glad we got a chance to do this. Um, yeah, I think like if you go back a couple months, I think everyone was excited to finally have somewhat of a normal off season. You know, I think kind of right after the season, obviously, you know, having a great year and graduating a lot of guys and kind of getting a new look, but you were still in the midst of COVID and going through the protocols. And then as, you know, things kind of progressed, we were able to kind of get out of it. And there was some light at the end of the tunnel, which I think people were obviously not only in our world, but in all aspects of life, people were excited about. But just for us, like we went into last season and, you know, there was obviously I was taking over and as the staff, we were trying to get, kind of a new system installed. And then we had one spring practice and it was cut short. And so this year having an actual spring ball and being able to be with the players and develop them and work with them, like sometimes spring ball can be a little bit of a drag for the players, but like, I think everybody was excited because you didn't have it the year before. And um, so this off season from that standpoint was great. You know, from a recruiting standpoint, it was still Zoom, virtual visits, I mean, you guys know it as well as anyone, like it's hard to show people the beauty of campus and what it's like to walk in the stadium when they can't actually be here. Um, and then when those got lifted and we were finally able to have a June that was normal, I mean, holy crap, was that a lot? I mean, we had like, I mean, visitors every single day, whether it's unofficial or official camps a couple times a week. I mean, we were 27 days straight as a staff working you know, days blend together. It's a Sunday, but it feels like a Tuesday. It's a Wednesday and you're hoping it's a Saturday, but it's not. 
Um, but our recruiting staff, they did a great job of balancing it all out and, and coming up with a schedule that made sense. And, you know, us as coaches, we had to wear a lot of hats, but, you know, it was all for the benefit of the program and it was all to get the right people here and show them why this place can be special for them. And, um, you know, like as we get into July, you finally have a little bit of time off, but then it's, well, you're still recruiting and you're trying to get as prepared as you can for camp in the season while also trying to find some sort of balance because it's really our only time off throughout the year. Um, so that month kind of is a hard juggling act, but we're winding down here a little bit. We got, you know, this weekend will be our last weekend fully off. And then from here, we'll, uh, we'll get ready for the season. So you're entering your fifth year back on staff and second year as the offensive coordinator, but this is the first time since you've been a coach in Notre Dame where the court, the starting quarterback hasn't been announced heading into fall camp. You're obviously very familiar with what it's like being a part of a quarterback competition, but as a coach, do you change your approach when you've got two talented guys like Jack Cohn and Drew Pine and, and even an injured guy? Um, and they're still competing to be the starter, but as opposed to the past couple of years where you had Ian Book, who is the clear QB one, do you change your approach at all there? Well, Luke, first of all, like you're the first person to not ask about Tyler Buckner first. So I appreciate <laughs> that. Um, we'll get secondly, that. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think you have, I mean, you change your approach in terms of not necessarily how you're coaching or how you're preparing them or the level of expectation you hold them to, but you, your approach naturally changes because like by the third year with Ian, you know, we're pretty much on the same page, right? Like we see things the same way. He knows what's going to trigger me. Um, we're doing little things within the offense to kind of tinker it and, and because he has the base already down. Like, I think right now, the biggest thing for me is you can't really assume anything. You know, there were times with Ian, you could assume that you, he knows what we're trying to emphasize because we've gone through it for three years together. You know, right now for me, the biggest thing that's different is you can't assume anything. And you have a, you know, you have some young guys in the room, you have some guys that have been there and then you bring in a fifth year who has a ton of experience, but not here. Right. So like my biggest thing going into the spring and this whole process has been just don't assume they know anything because you're going to, you're going to be mistaken to do so. And, you know, for me, it, it, to be honest with you, like it challenges me and it makes me a better coach because I'm preparing guys um, where that assumption is not already in place. And it's not a kid like Ian who's been here for a hundred years and, and, him and I were extremely close and knew each other extremely well. It's, it's a different type of, of build. And um, to be honest with you, it's exciting and it's a lot of fun because you kind of get back to the grassroots and you kind of start from zero again and get to, you know, build um, kind of where we started with Ian and Brandon. You get to build that with a fresh group of guys. I want to shift away from the quarterback position for a little bit because Mike, we'll, we'll come back to it. Michael Jr. tweeted that when you were in college, used to say that if you could come back in another life and play a yeah, different position, guard. it would be a pulling guard. Is that true? Yeah. Um, yeah, I say it all the time. Um, I'm surprised Golok remembers it, to be honest with you. Uh, yeah, I've always identified myself that way. Um, like, there's just like a grittiness and like a nastiness to that. I lived with a couple offense linemen in college. Um, I think my personality is probably more along those lines than it is as a quarterback. Um, but yeah, I mean, like there's a beauty to the offensive line play when all those guys are working together and doing things the right way. Like there's a beauty to it and nothing's less heralded than like the dirty, you know, squatty offensive guard. 
so like, I don't know if you guys remember Chris Watt, but he was one of my roommates who played guard for us. Like that is the embodiment of an offensive guard or like a guy like Tommy Kramer. So um, that's where my heart lies. And unfortunately or fortunately, I wasn't built that way. So <laughs> on that note, though, you guys added a guard via the transfer portal this summer and Cade Madden from Marshall. And even though he hasn't been at Notre Dame very long, he's already accomplished a lot in his college career and brings a veteran presence to an offensive line with only one returning starter. When did Kane get on your radar and what impact do you expect him to have on a young offensive line this season? That was a tremendous segue. Um, there, yeah, so we, we were obviously in the market. We lost an offensive lineman to the portal and I've always felt like we owe it to our room and we owe it to our guys and really the program to, to have as much competitiveness as we can. I just, I firmly believe that competition can bring out the best in guys. Um, so when you lose one, we felt like we needed to add one. Um, so we went kind of in this free agency market of the transfer portal to see who was out there. Um, you know, we have a guy on staff who played at Marshall, who worked at Marshall, who kind of knew um, Kane and from, from a long time ago, which was certainly helped. Um, you know, we brought Kane on a visit and look, the thing I'll say about Kane is for him, like here's an extremely mature kid who knows how to compete, knows how to play at a high level. And he's not walking into some program that doesn't have good offensive linemen, right? Like the thing that struck me the most was his mentality to want to compete. And when you look at successful graduate transfers, most of them have the same type of mentality. Look at guys like Ben from last year or Nick McLeod, like they walk in the door and like their, their mindset and their competitiveness level are the things that get them by and get them through and really lead them to excelling. Um, and that's really what we were looking for in this, in this transfer. And so when we found that in him, you know, we didn't want him to leave campus without, without saying that he wanted to be here. Um, and so it's funny, like we were at breakfast, um, at one of like the local places in town here. And like, I don't think anyone's ever committed at like a little breakfast restaurant in South Bend, but he's the first one to do it. And so like in traditional lineman fashion, like there's no glitz and glamor. It's just about the business. And um, we're very excited to have him. And I think this summer we've seen strides and just, look, you come into a program like this from Marshall and his ability to jump in with Bayless and like transform his body and really get going there. It's been really fun to see. And it, look, we, throughout spring, we had a bunch of guys playing that hadn't played and a bunch of young guys and, to have Jarrett back and to have Kane in the mix, like that adds a lot of experience and a lot of starts between the two of them. You've said time and time again that you build your offense to maximize all of your players' strengths, and those can change each year as players graduate and new guys step in. So can you shed a little bit of light on what your process looks like from evaluating your guys to ultimately structuring the playbook for each new season? Yeah, look, I think it's always a blend of, okay, this is what we believe in offensively, and this is what we're going to do. And then it's, okay, well, this is who we have, and how do we match those together, right? Like, I got really good advice from a coach recently. You you treat it like kind of like a Venn diagram, right? Like, this is who we are, this is who we have, and then the space in the middle is what your offense becomes. And so, like, there are certain core concepts or things that we believe in offensively, um, 
but those have to match who we have, right? And so that's a process that we go through throughout spring, throughout the summer workouts, throughout camp, on evaluating who can add benefit to the team. Um, and then it's my job to make sure that I'm matching their skill set with the plays that we call, right? We got to do a great job of putting our players in position to be successful. You know, last year, for example, we felt like we had three tight ends that could help us win games. I mean, really a couple more, but like three at that point that could really help us win football games. So we played in a bunch of 12 and 13, you know, like you'd be foolish not to play to your strengths. You know, that's something that I've never understood, but you know, this year it could look completely different. You know, we have really good running backs and, you know, you can see those guys on the field together at the same time, because at the end of the day, our job is to win games and we're going to put the best people out there that give us the chance to do so. And, um, you know, our guys are smart. They have a ton of versatility. Um, our wideouts can do a bunch of different things. Our tight ends can do a bunch of different things. I've already talked about our running backs. So it, it's, it's fortunate for us because we can be creative with their roles and they can move around and do different things. So, um, look, you, you match what you do well, and then you always try to create some new opportunities for guys and every off season, you know, you're going to carry over the things that you want to continue to improve at and continue at a high level, but you're also going to find new ways to get people in position to be successful. Yeah. I mean, that all makes sense to me. And your knowledge of the game of football is pretty well documented and your experience as a player and a coach speaks for itself. You probably forgot more about football yesterday than I'll know in my entire life. But last year was your first season as play caller. And I'm curious what that transition was like for you. Without giving up any secrets, are there any lessons you could share with us from your first full season? Basically, is there anything about being a play caller that you can't really prepare for until you actually do it? Oh, yeah, it is hard definitely to like simulate it. Um, like going back to, to 19 and calling the bowl game, right? Like that ended up being as beneficial as anything. Like you go into that game, you didn't really have time to like call a mock game. And like, I called a bunch of the practices off of a call sheet instead of a script, which, you know, coach Kelly had us do. And that was, you know, great practice. Um, and there've been times in the past where, you know, I got to call it or whatever, but nothing like a full, full situation. Um, so the bowl game was something like after that game happened and after I, you know, got the job and, and all that, like, it's something I really looked back on, like, okay, I felt like I didn't have enough of this or, I probably didn't need this many calls in this situation. Um, and then as you go through an entire season, like you can imagine if one game meant that much, well, a whole season, you know, provides that many more opportunities to say, okay, I need this. I don't need that. Um, I think like the, the thing that actually came easier than I thought was like the speed of calling a play and like having something ready. And, I, and I've always felt like if you prepare the right way, as a player, as a coach, like it makes game day a little bit easier. So like when you prepare throughout the week and you know what you want to call and you know the sequence and you know when you're going to call certain things, it helps it helps prepare it a little bit and it makes the game a little bit easier. Um, you know, there are certainly things that like I wish I would have done better. I was talking to somebody a couple of days ago and like, look, I'm a highly competitive person and most people that way are most critical on themselves, right? So like when I go back and look at things, like I'm up at night thinking about certain play calls in certain situations. And, um, you know, I just think like, as I kind of self-assess where I was at and where I want to be moving forward, 
Like, I think there are little things that I can do to help make situations easier. And um, like, look, we weren't great in the red zone. And that's just a fact. Like for as good as we were in between the twenties, we weren't great in the red zone for as good as we were on third down, which attributed to a ton of our success. We got to end those drives with six and not three. And so like the huge focus this off season has been those, those um, areas to improve. So like when you look at it and you say, okay, well, what did I do to limit our success in the red zone? Like let's take away execution. Let's take it off the players. Like what can I do as a play caller to give ourselves better execution? And so that's really been a huge area of focus for me um, and an area where I want to make sure I'm improved. And I do think without giving away too much, like I do think there are areas down there where I can be better. And so, um, but again, like it's a constant learning and it's a constant um, drive to want to be the best version I can be, but it's, it's for our players, right? Like at the end of the day, our duty is to give them success and to give them opportunities to go execute. And so for me, it's self-assessment, to allow our players to be successful. Shifting back a little bit to the quarterback position, evaluating that position seems to be one of the more difficult things to do in all of sports right now. You see it at the pro level where scouts who spend their entire lives evaluating quarterbacks can't seem to get it right consistently in the draft. And those challenges aren't exclusive to the pros. You see it in high school and college too. So as someone who has played the position and coached it for years now, what are the most important aspects you look for in a quarterback prospect on and off the field? Yeah, I think anytime you evaluate a kid, um, like there's a certain benchmark physically that they have to have, right? Like for us, we're only going to recruit kids that can, like when you watch a kid throw or see them move, like it's either a yes or a no, right? There's not a ton of gray area in that. Okay. Like it's either a yes or a no there. So like we already know there's a threshold where they need to meet. If they're below it, they probably can't play at this level. If they're above it, then how do you start differentiating between those guys that are above the line? Um, so, like, <clears throat> look, there's there's certain things that I really like and I really look for, um, like from a from a conversation standpoint. Like when you get a kid that can hold his own and have some personality and some confidence to him, that's always a plus. Um, when you when you sit down with the kid and are able to talk football, like how well do they retain it? How well can they spit it back out to you when you ask them like, Hey, do you know who played on Thursday night? And they can tell you, okay, well, at least they're paying attention to the game and they probably care a lot about football. And those things matter at the end of the day. Um, like I love kids that play multiple sports. Like I, I can't emphasize that enough. Like I was just talking, I actually had our quarterbacks over for dinner a couple of nights ago and I was ripping pine because all I played was football in high school. And I'm like, you're supposed to be like, you're coming to Notre Dame. You want to be the starting quarterback at Notre Dame, but you're telling me that in your high school in New Canaan, Connecticut, you can't help one other team. Like you can't help your basketball team. You can't help your lacrosse team. Like you're not a good enough athlete to go onto that team and, and help. And he's like, well, I would have been the best player on the basketball team lacrosse. I'm like, then play. Like, what, what are you holding back? Because like, look, what you learn playing other sports, like you might be the star quarterback and you might go be a guy on the basketball team that's the sixth man and energy guy and plays defense. That's great. Like you're having to learn a different role because you learn how to be a great teammate and you learn how to compete and you learn how to, to take a step back and be supplementary. So like I love guys that play multiple sports because one, it shows like an athleticism to them. 
but also it shows like a level of competitiveness and like a level of care, like for their teammates, for their high school, for their program. Like I can't fathom a world where like, you're going to come be the starting quarterback in Notre Dame, but you can't help any other team in your, in your high school. Like I don't get it. And so I know the way things go now, people play seven on seven and they're doing football all year long, but like, I love kids that like to compete and want to play multiple sports. And so like we have a ton of guys on our roster that didn't and we have some that did, but like that's going to be a differentiator for me. It just is. And so when we look at guys that like to do more than one thing, that's pretty important to me. All right. You know, I got to ask about him. The most recent quarterback recruit, Tyler Buckner. I know you've been asked about him a ton. He was committed to Notre Dame forever and you honestly haven't been able to see him play that much in large part because he hasn't played a whole lot of football these past couple of years. So now that you've been able to see him progress through spring practice and into the summer, is there anything that stands out about his game now that you might not have noticed before? Maybe it just sticks out a little bit more now. Yeah. Um, there are people that play this game that have the innate ability to throw on time and to throw um, like into windows when they're supposed to be there. And so like this spring, you know, there were times where he'd be, it would look like he was early to a throw and maybe it ends up incomplete, but really like he's anticipating it and he's on time. And so like I had to catch myself and be like, no, don't change a thing. Like we got to get everybody on the same page because you're on time. And so like, I think, look, I, again, I know whatever, like Tyler, there's a lot he needs to do and there's a lot where he needs to progress and get ready and get better. But like, Guys that can throw on time and anticipate, there's you that's, I mean, that's a very good sign, especially at a young age. And so um, when he came in and was, you know, he's throwing a dig cut before the receiver's even out of his break and it's on time, like that innate ability to just have a feel for when balls are supposed to come out is, is look, it's hard to evaluate when you're just throwing on air. It really happens like when there's a defense out there. And so that was something that we saw early in spring that was, different and it was exciting like i'm not here to feel the hype so <laughs> we're not asking the questions. <laughs> and obviously he's got some big shoes to fill wearing number 12 which was obviously in books number for the last five years we know you and ian are very close as you were with him pretty much every step of the way throughout his whole career and nobody understands what he had to go through better than you do probably so i'll give you the floor to describe what it was like coaching him the past three years or if there's a story that maybe best represents your relationship, that's great as well. Yeah, I don't – I mean, there's a ton of stories. I don't know how many I want to share. Um, look, like, I'm a young coach early in your career. Like, you don't know how different, like, players you coach are going to affect you. And, like, getting into coaching, I didn't think I would ever be, like, affected by a player as much as Ian affected me. And so – look like our relationship is much more like older brother, younger brother than it is like player coach, which is pretty unique. And I don't think I'll ever have, and it's more so because of where I was in my life and my age and my career, it was just like the right time for it. Like, I don't know if I'll ever have a relationship as close to a player as I did with Ian, just because look, when I got here, I was 24, 23. And like, he was probably 19. So there's not a huge age gap. Um, and so like, my highest praise to him is like every relationship I have with a kid, every kid I coach from here on out, like they're going to be held to Ian's standard. 
And so like the way he prepared, the way he got ready to play, the way he handled his business, the way he treated his teammates, the way he came and treated the coaches, like everybody from here on out is going to be held to that standard. Am I going to coach kids that are more talented? I don't mean this as a slight to Ian, but yeah, like there, there will be kids that come through my door that are more talented, but from a relationship standpoint and from a work ethic standpoint, everybody from here on out is going to be held against his standard. And like, that's as high as praise as I can have for him. Um, and the thing about Ian is like, look, I'm not going to sit here and take the credit. His parents did an unbelievable job raising the kid he is, but like, he's also like, he's a self-made player. Like he worked his ass off to get to where he got. And like the first time I ever met with him, I'll never forget it. He didn't know how many people to put on the line of scrimmage. Like he didn't know what was legal and what wasn't. And so like, I took a step back and I was like, all right, we have to start from, from ground zero here. And this is going to be a complete hauling of, of building his knowledge base. And I remember like that first spring, him throwing an incompletion off the back of a lineman's helmet. And I'm like, holy shit, we have to find a backup quarterback because this kid can't do it. And then by the end of the spring, I mean, he lit up the spring game, like lit it up. And it's like, okay, like he's got a chance. And so there were steps along the way that just were like huge gains for him. Um, I mean, he would come over, you know, all the time to have dinner and watch football games and just talk and like those, that relationship I'm going to miss. And like people around the office, like he was up in my office whenever he didn't have class, maybe even while he had class, like he was up there all the time. And so like that part you miss, but it's a new wave of kids and it's a great group. And like, fortunately for me, like the guys that were here got to see how he prepared and he worked and the way he handled his business. And I'm hoping that leads to a natural progression of, okay, well, they pick up where he left off and then a new wave comes in and they're able to pick up where these guys left off. And like, but it all started somewhere. And it started with Ian. It's the same way the old line tradition, like it all started with Zach back in 2011 or 2012. And all those guys that have come after him learned from that example. And so like for me, Ian kind of represents that for the quarterback room. Now you bring up 2012 there and something that I've always wondered about that year is you had a pretty unique role that year where I think a lot of people kind of looked at you as almost a bullpen guy or a closer as a quarterback. You came in in some pretty big games forever for various reasons. And in some cases that might've been for an extended period of time, like in the Michigan and Stanford games, or just for a critical third down, like at Oklahoma. So people talk all the time saying players on the sidelines always have to be ready to play, but you really live that out. So I'm curious, what was that like for you in that role? And are you able to leverage that experience now as a teaching point, as a coach? Yeah, I try not to leverage it. I mean, like, look, it's obviously important. The next guy's got to be ready. And look, I had started, I don't know, 15, 16, I don't know how many games before that season. So I had a ton of experience where like a lot of these guys that are usually the backups don't. So it's a lot harder to say like, hey, you got to be ready to go in. Like I was when I played a ton before that. Um, but there is still a way to be ready and prepared and like, I definitely, you know, use my own experiences to harp on that. But look, that year was hard, to be honest with you. Like, it wasn't like I handled it well, I felt like, and I was there to help and support Everett and, you know, make sure he was ready and, but also like getting myself ready. But look, as a competitor, you also think like, hey, like I'm playing in these big moments and playing well, like the whole game, like why I can't do that. And like, so, I mean, like, look, 
to be honest, it wasn't as easy as I probably let it on to be. But at the end of the day, like there's 105 guys in that locker room that are counting on you. And so whatever your role is, you have to embrace it and you have to be selfless and you have to do what's best for the team. And, you know, I was there to help Ev. I was there to, you know, make sure that when my number was called that I went in there and didn't let him down. And, you know, I had to play, um, you know, the whole BYU game and, you know, essentially the whole Michigan game. And like, look, when your number's called, you have a duty to your teammates to go out there and execute. Um, You know, like the hardest part was during the game, you're standing there and you're like, okay, well, at any moment, like I might be going in. And so like the Purdue game, I think I threw like four balls and then jogged out on the field. And like, I hadn't looked like I got in trouble. I was missed the opener. I didn't take any reps during camp at all, like a team or seven on seven. Like I took zero reps the entire summer. My first reps I took were against the scout team, the Purdue week. And then at the end of the week, I'm playing. Like I didn't know any of that was going to happen. Um, but like you just, to me, it always came from the fuel to support your teammates and to do what's best for the team. And so like when you put those guys in perspective and you put that as the motivation, like it's easy to be ready to go. So, you know, that season ends and then going into that off season following 2012, you're behind Everett on the depth chart. He's coming off a national championship game appearance with three years of eligibility left. Then a bunch of weird shit starts to happen. And then he gets suspended from school. And all of a sudden you're the guy again, who is the first person to tell you about Everett's suspension? Um, yeah, well, just to backtrack, like, the same thing, like that off season, like I probably could have graduated and played somewhere else. And like, that was, you know, I had some people reaching out and like, I remember before our bowl game, like I, I remember talking to my roommates and like Zach and Watt and Dan and those guys. And I was like, look, I'm not going to leave. Like, I'm going to stay. Like, these are my guys. This is what I care about. Like, I'm not going anywhere. And I remember going into coach's office, like probably in December sometime before the bowl game. And just telling him and I'm like, Hey, I know there's been some talk and I'm, but I just want you guys to know now, like, I'm not going to accelerate my academics. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to be here next year, you know? And I remember making that decision thinking like, okay, like this is what's best for the team, right? This is what is best for the team. And so like, I never knew it was going to come like full circle to like mattering as much as it did. Um, But it's weird, like how those decisions end up, like being much larger than you think in the moment, right? Because five months later, six months later, everything's changing. Um, I was actually, I was actually in California, I was in LA. I was with my best friend and my brother celebrating my 21st birthday. And um, a girl I went to school with, who I went to high school with, and then Notre Dame with, and we're just, I mean, we're good friends and we've been good friends for a long time. She texted me and she was like, hey, have you heard about this? And I was kind of like, like, no. And like, I had no reason to know why she would know. You know what I mean? Like, it was just, I was like, you're messing with me. And then she didn't like respond for like an hour. And I was like, what the heck is going on? And then like, I kind of got, and then she texted me again. She's like, no, like I think this is real. And then when she said that, I reached out to somebody in the office and he told me, he's like, Hey, yeah, I'll call you back in 10 minutes. So I knew then that, and then we were, we were out celebrating my 21st, not celebrating what was going on because look, ever and I had a good relationship and you don't want that to happen, but like we're at a bar and ESPN's on and my brother's going up to girls and pointing at the screen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, this is a joke, but um, 
look, I'm glad, you know, everything came back around and Everett was back in school and um, it, you know, worked out how it was supposed to work out, I guess. But um, it was just a whirlwind of an offseason. Yeah. And despite that offseason, you guys end up finishing nine and four and you graduate as one of the winningest quarterbacks in Notre Dame history. So, you know, despite all the shit you had to deal with, you still managed to accomplish so much. So I guess I'll ask a two part question here before we finish up with some rapid fire questions. What was your favorite moment from your playing career and what was the most challenging? Oh, man. Um, favorite moment from playing career. I mean, there's probably two, to be honest with you. Um, beating SC my freshman year was a highlight. Like, we hadn't beat them in forever. I'm a true freshman. We're playing in the rain, like kind of a dramatic finish. Played really well in the first half, did not play well in the second half. And then we had that long drive there right before the game, like really, you know, Rob's game winner. Um, I think we threw two passes on the whole drive, which was, you know, awesome for me. But um, <laughs> that was probably a highlight. Look, I grew up, my dad worked at UCLA forever. My brother went to UCLA. My mom went to UCLA. So like hating SC was in the blood, not from like a Notre Dame background, but from a UCLA perspective. So the UCLA USC rivalry, the Notre Dame SC rivalry, like beating SC has mattered to my family for a very long time. And so when we beat them, it was, it was surreal. Cause you know, you're an 18 year old kid who looks like he's 12 and you're beating them there. And like, it meant so much to the family. And after the game, you do your interviews in the tunnel, like the media is out there in the tunnel waiting for the players. And I remember walking out of the locker room to talk to the media and the first person I saw behind the ropes was my father. Like somehow he finagled his way down into the tunnel to be there to congratulate me. And like that memory sticks out. Um, the second one is probably senior night. Um, my senior year when we played um, BYU, it was like 11 degrees. Yeah. It was like minus four with the windshield or something. Was, and it was yeah, snowing sucked. and it was freezing. But it was just like – look, I'm from the Midwest. So like that type of football has always resonated with me. And like, I remember you, know, you just come out to the field, your parents are there, but somehow my brother snuck down. So that was cool. And he was on the sideline for like warm ups. And then at the end of the game, when the student section is chanting your name, like for everything that happened throughout my career to like kind of have that be the last memory in Notre Dame stadium, like that was pretty cool. And, and that's something that has stood out for me for a long time. The hardest to be honest with you, like it's the losses, right? And it's the losses that I, I felt like I let everyone down. Like the pit loss my senior year, like I'll never forget it. Like I threw a pick in the end zone and then a couple of drives later, like sailed the sail, sailed the seam route to Koyak and the safety picked it, ran it back to the two. Like I was playing as well as I had all year for three quarters. And then I let us down in the fourth. And that was the game. Like we could still win 10 at that point. And if you won 10 back then, you pretty much were going to a BCS game. And so when we lost that, I felt like, okay, that's our third loss. There goes the BCS game. Like we were coming into a bye week. So that made it even harder. Like that was as low as it got for me. Um, you know, the Michigan bus ride home in 11 was a low point, but um, those two were probably the hardest. It's funny you bring up that USC game because Luke and I used to talk about when we were kids, honestly, before that game, there's definitely a point in my childhood where like, I didn't think Notre Dame was ever going to beat USC, like in my entire life. So <laughs> well, how do we got to figure it out? All right. Well, we'll finish up here for rapid fire questions. So 
flashback to 2012 or 2013. It's a Saturday night. You guys just won in Notre Dame Stadium. Where could we expect to find a younger Tommy Reese celebrating a win? Uh, three parts. It would start in the play in like the parent tailgate lot, be there for a little bit. Then like we all lived off campus in a house. It would probably go there. There'd be a bunch of people there probably. And then, I mean, we ended up at CJ's most nights. So that was the, it was tailgate to house to CJ's. All right. I don't think that changes much. We're big CJ's guys. Yeah. Just stand the test of time. You spent a lot of time in South Bend now. What's your favorite restaurant in South Bend or Mishawaka? I mean, I get to Chicago quite a bit. Uh, Probably J.W. Chen's, to be honest with you. Probably J.W. Chen's. I like Chinese food. That's kind of a go-to. That and Barnaby's would probably be my two go-tos. Like in terms of, I don't go out to eat here much. I usually take it home. So, yeah. Okay. If you had to draft a team to compete in the bookstore basketball tournament using only coaches in the current staff, who would you pick to round out your starting five? Uh, yeah, I would be in there. Chris O'Leary, our safeties coach. He's a good player. Uh, full-time coaches only, or can I like take some GAs? Yeah, you can take GAs. All right. Trevor Mendelson. He's our O-line guy. He's really good. Uh, Lazinski is a spark plug. He'd probably run the point. Uh, I don't think any other full-time coaches hoop anymore. Like we used to have a really good group of full-time guys that would actually play. I don't think any play. Um, And then McCray, I guess, Mike McCray is now our defensive analyst or GA. Like I've played with him a couple of times now that he's gotten hired. He'd probably be the fifth. But like O'Leary and I are probably the high volume guys out there. So we're getting shots up. All right. All right. I like that. We typically ask Notre Dame alums what the weirdest thing they've ever seen in club fever is. But I want to ask you, what's the weirdest interaction you've ever had with a fan? Oh, man. Um I mean, there's a lot. I had <laughs> I a, I recently had a woman fan tell me that she has three kids because of me. And like, <laughs> I didn't really know what that meant. So like we were like recently, like we took a picture and she's like, yeah, I have three kids because of you. And like, I know they're not mine. So I don't know what exactly that meant. Was your husband like taking the picture? Did you look at him? Like, uh, yeah, yeah, I think um, the fever question is really funny. That's a real. Like, I mean, you can answer it if there's one that you feel willing to share. Uh, I have a great, great Zach Martin story from there, but I cannot share that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's a pretty consistent theme with that question. Most are not safe air, but uh, Tommy, we know you have stuff to do. Thanks again for taking the time this morning. We really appreciate it, and uh, can't wait to watch you guys this fall. So, best of luck to you. Cool guys, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Shifting away from Notre Dame now, the rumors and speculation that shook up the college football world this past weekend became official on Monday morning as Texas and Oklahoma formally notified the Big 12 they will not be renewing their media rights after their contract expires in 2025, which opens the door for their reported move to the SEC four years from now. Look, the reaction to this news from all different corners of the college football landscape has been strong, which is to be expected. I mean, these are two of the biggest brands in college football, joining powers with an already dominant Southeastern Conference. The eight other Big 12 schools are pissed because this move sends their futures into absolute chaos. And judging by their reaction, you would think Texas and OU joined forces to set all of the Big 12 campuses on fire. 
Then you've got Texas A&M, who is treating the SEC's acceptance of Texas as an act of betrayal the likes the world has not <laughs> seen since Benedict Arnold joined forces with the British Army in 1780. <laughs> the rest of the Power Five schools are now just trying to figure out what the hell happens next. I mean, we're just a few weeks removed from this expanded college football playoff. And now who knows what's going to happen. So Luke, it's pretty clear this move will definitely start a domino effect that will impact all of college football. But what's your reaction to just another wave of conference realignment? I mean, it makes a lot of sense why Greg Sankey was on board with the expansion of the college football playoff, because now you add Texas and Oklahoma, that's even more teams that are going to potentially be in that field. And you can have years where the SEC might have four or five teams in it. So I think people were kind of surprised when the SEC seemed on board with that expanded playoff because they've kind of dominated it. And now it makes a lot more sense why. I'll also say my bigger takeaway is that conferences are fucking stupid. Um, they are really dumb. Like I've seen proposals now that the SEC and the ACC could merge or consolidate. And like talking about 20 team conferences, that's not a conference. That's just 20 teams. Like how, how can you call it a conference when the teams don't play each other every year? It's, it's ridiculous. We need to go back to independence, and I stand on that hill. Conferences are stupid. I get it in basketball because it just gives a lot more structure to the season. Football, they're stupid. Let the best play the best. Let the poors be poor. Like that's that's all I got for you. Like I'm so sick of conferences, and I I hope that this just makes real people realize how dumb they are. Like think about this: if Texas goes to the SEC, the Longhorn Network, which was such a big deal when they set it up, that's done. Like because of media rights deals, so that's pretty dumb. Um, I'm trying to think what else. Like the Big 12 is just going to cease to exist. You might have West Virginia and the ACC. I, God knows what Iowa State's going to do. I, I mean, it's probably time for Matt Campbell to find another job. But <laughs> it's uh, it's it's a mess, and uh, it's good for us because we don't have to care about it because it doesn't impact us. But I just hope that this illustrates to the rest of the world how stupid these fucking conferences are because they are so so stupid. Yeah, I really don't think it impacts Notre Dame at all because. It doesn't impact the ACC. If Notre Dame is going to join a conference, it's going to go to the ACC. Now, it could affect them down the road because the college football playoff expansion might be affected by this because, like you said, the Big 12 might just disappear here shortly. I mean, this move doesn't take place officially for another four years, so there's plenty of time. There's plenty of backstabbing. There's plenty of different things that could go on over the course of the next four years. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you on the conference thing. I really need someone who's like, is it diehard? Notre Dame needs to join a conference. Like, Why? Really not why, because if it's a money yeah. thing, people would get mad at Notre Dame. It's like, oh, it's a money thing before when it was the NBC deal. And OK, yeah, it was. And now all of this is all driven by money, which is obvious. I mean, the exact figures on the ESPN deal with uh, the SEC, they've been rumored to be around three billion. I, I don't think the official number is out, but to just think that CBS, which is the biggest broadcasting company in the country just folded their hands with the SEC, just like, all right, no, like we can't compete with that. It's astronomical. And now like financially, it makes a ton of sense for Texas and Oklahoma. They're going to get probably $55 million a year somewhere in that range because of this deal. And from a competition standpoint, I get it from the perspective of Texas. They haven't really done much in the Big 12 anyway. At least now they totally undercut Texas A&M's single recruiting pitch over them, other than the fact that they've had a more stable program over the past couple of years. They basically just sold to all their players that, hey, you come here, you play in the SEC. Now Texas comes in saying, hey, we're bigger, we're better, little brothers in the SEC, but now we are too. And now they're probably going to steal all their recruits. Oklahoma, though, 
I don't really totally understand it. I feel like they could have made just as much money in the Big Ten, been the you know the only team to compete with the Big, Ohio, the big Twelve or the Big the 10? Big Ten. So like they could go get the same amount of money if if they join the Big Ten, yeah. be Ohio State's only real competition to win the Big Ten championship consistently, and the Big Ten Network financially just seems like it, it could have worked there. But nope, they uh, joined forces with Texas, and now they're headed to the SEC. Yeah, I also saw a report rumored that the SEC had reached out to, I want to say it was in addition to those two schools, like it was like Clemson, uh, Florida State, and then there was somebody else in Michigan. Oh, Ohio State, Michigan. My question is, why the hell are they reaching out to Michigan? They suck. Like, well, <laughs> They're like, a huge like, why brand. Why do they want Michigan in their They're conference? still a huge brand. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, yeah, but they suck. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I just – I'm so sick of these like just conference discussions. And like, I guess another good point is that I think I've seen it that this could lead to a 10 game SEC schedule or whatever. Does that impact our games with Bama down the road? Like, do we even end up playing those games? Like, if they have to play 10 conference games. Wow, now you're really do, thinking I mean, ahead. Like, Don't we play them in like, you know, what, two, what is it, 234? 20, 2032 20, or something like that. I mean, I don't know. Hopefully, that. Hopefully I'm in a much better place then, but I, I, we'll see. No promises. Um, not, that was not meant to be taken like that. Anyways, uh, but like, you know what I'm saying though? Like some of these non-conference games that get scheduled ridiculously in advance, yeah. like they might not happen now. So I, I don't know. Like it's, it's a lot of uncertainty. I don't think it ultimately really impacts us that much at all. And if anything, I almost feel like the ball is even more in our court now because you might have some of these conferences just like, begging on their hands and knees now to add Notre Dame to try to save their conference. And I don't think we're going to do it, but it'll be nice to be suited. I mean, everybody likes being suited. So um, we'll see. But it's uh, to me, again, it just illustrates how dumb these conferences are and what a silly concept it is. But that's not uh, that's not really doesn't really impact me. I do want to focus a little bit on Texas A&M and the reaction more the outcry of this. They're losers. Listen, Texas A&M, you've, why do you care you've that been, much? Like, yeah. just get over yourself. You've been in the SEC for this will be the tenth year, and they're pissed that the SEC didn't notify them. Like, relax. Like, you're still relatively new on the block here. Why do you all of a sudden? You haven't even made it to an SEC championship. Why are you all of a sudden held to this higher standard? That whoa, now we're bringing in competition. We're going to have to work harder to be successful. Screw you, SEC. Like, that doesn't even make any sense. Texas A&M fans, underrated insufferable they're up they're climbing up the ranks there they're getting close to like florida state online and maybe ohio state uh they're getting there i mean this is the same school that was trash talking notre dame fans because they got blown out by alabama alabama by what we lost by 17 they lost by 40 and then in their bowl game they played a north carolina team that was playing I think they're third and fourth string, and they barely won. Like, I don't want to hear from Texas A&M fans. They have this absurd sense of entitlement for a team that has accomplished not much, really, in any recent years. So I don't get I that. I mean, it's, it starts with the guy at the top. Jimbo Fisher is the biggest coward on the planet, just leaving Florida State in the lurch. I hate that guy. He's a scumbag. Is this all because um, of I his post-game press conference after Notre Dame-Florida State in 2014 when he called Jameis Winston, like, a great man of character? I think, well, that was the whole humble pie game. But no, I just, I don't like Jimbo. I think he's a coward. I think he quit on Florida State. Um, I know that Florida State had a lot of financial issues at the time, but he quit on them and then just went to oil money. And also, you know when the last time Texas A&M claimed a national title was? I'm looking at this right now. I'd say 50 years. 
I feel like in the seventies, a lot of people were claiming championships. Yeah, you could you can go higher. Okay, sixty. We talking World War Two years? Uh, you just prior to World <laughs> War Two, nineteen thirty nine was the last time they claimed a national title. They've claimed three. The others were in nineteen twenty seven, which I think Notre Dame I actually that won one. it that no. year. <clears throat> and then nineteen nineteen. <laughs> And then 1919. So, yeah, that's a really illustrious path uh, for, for Texas A&M. And so I guess the oil money gives them a lot of confidence or something. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I can't stand those guys. And it starts with Jimbo. At least with the Big 12 schools, I understand why they're pissed. I mean, uh, I saw a tweet that described as basically a bunch of stores in a mall with the two biggest stores just leaving and saying, hey, mall, figure it out. I get it from them, but the – the tone in these people, like the Big 12 presidents, I think Oklahoma State came out and basically he, it was almost like the fact that Oklahoma would join forces with Texas to do something that in turn negatively impacted the state of Oklahoma because of what it does to Oklahoma State. It, it was just a horrendous, heinous crime. And now they're all just extremely upset about it. And look, I, at least from their point of view, I get it. You know, they didn't really see this coming. If this whole conference thing, if you want to talk about the sanctity of a conference, you know, it's the same shit that we've heard from all these fans telling Notre Dame to join a conference. If all of that mattered, if all of it truly did, then I think Texas and Oklahoma would have treated the Big 12 a little bit differently. But yep. as we sort of established here, that none of that ever actually mattered. This is always about money. And I like, while I kind of sit here and say, well, yeah, we told you so about the money thing. I don't necessarily love it for the sport of college football. I think it's cool when like, you know, different schools aren't all playing in the SEC. Like the fact that, we're going to be having an SEC conference with 16 different teams is kind of just absurd. And it just stupid. it doesn't feel right. It's going to be a really long time before I look at Texas and be like, OK, yeah, SEC football. It's just weird. Yeah. I mean, speaking of Texas, I think I mentioned you this to you off air, but it's Fran Fraschilla actually tweeted it. His tweet was Texas is the rich kid who ruined his father's business. Because you think about how mediocre they've been the last 12 years. They're still a massive brand, but like, I hope they just get absolutely throttled in the SEC. Like, I'll root for that actively if that's what they're going to. I mean, four years is a lot of time, like you can say, and we'll see what Sark can do there. But, um, yeah, the conferences are stupid, and I hope that this illustrates that. I've said that about 100 times now, but this is uh, – I just think they're so, so dumb, and I don't know – I mean, I know why we're so tied into them. It's not tradition as – so many of those pro conference people try to claim it's money. And uh, I think that this has made it crystal clear why, what everybody's interests are. And we'll see, maybe this will actually have a ripple effect, but well, it will have a ripple effect, but I'm hoping it has a ripple effect in, in the sense that people realize conferences are fucking stupid. All right. I think that concludes our conference rant. You got anything more for this week? No. <laughs> um, well, we got fall camp coming up in like a week and a half. Right. right? We're getting dangerously close. This is pretty much the start of uh, the 2021 season for us. Uh, with the Tommy Reese interview and then getting ready for camp. Also, you have an article on the site you should plug. I do. Um, some might wonder why I wrote about this, but I published on Friday, I guess it was, an article about a pretty futile two-year recruiting stretch for Notre Dame in 2004 and 2005. Uh, that 2004 class was all Tyrone Willingham. The next year was half Willingham, half Weiss. And let's just preface it with saying that we – in 2004, had six two-star recruits, and two of them were quarterbacks. Uh, it's pretty impossible to imagine us doing that nowadays. And I guess the point I was trying to strike is that we've really come a long way, and we complain now when we are just getting too many four-stars and not enough five-stars. Um, 
yeah, things used to be really bad on the recruiting trail. And uh, I, I think that credit needs to be given where it's due. And we'll see if we can get into that top five layer we've been talking about. But uh, it was a really fun article for me to do and also see just kind of how poor the production was from those two years besides a handful of individuals like Darius Walker, David Bruton, and Maurice Crum. But uh, those two classes may have been two of the worst classes in Notre Dame history. Yeah, it's funny now in retrospect, like, more than 15 years after the fact, but definitely not funny at the time. And if nothing else, I think um, as an Notre Dame fan, if you read that article, you'll definitely, you know, think a little bit differently about just how good the state of the program is right now. But um, yeah, that's the show. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And we will be back right after the start of fall camp, probably that Tuesday. So about two weeks from Tuesday, the 2021 season will be kicked off and uh, we'll be full go. So until then, take care.